why are we surprised by death? Personally speaking, it's a daily part of my life. My favorite TV shows, movies, and books are horror and dark dramas. My dad and my brother are both ministers, so funerals and graveyards are deeply rooted in my life. And speaking of my life, I live it very cautiously so that nothing will accidentally happen to me. But I still lay awake at night, thinking about my mortality, wondering how death will come knocking at my door, and what that will mean for the me that outlasts my body. So why then, if every moment is spent thinking about death, was I surprised to find out that Lester died? My grandpa had been in bad shape for years. His health was worsening, and a few weeks before his death, he had heart failure and was stuck in a hospital. After a few days, he was sent to a home, and we all kind of felt that this was the end for him. But when I got the call a few days later, I was shocked, and I've been trying to figure out why. I'm not saying this is the answer, but I feel like as humans, we generally have a it-won't-happen-to-me complex. It's the reason I haven't been to the doctor in a very long time. It's the reason I say, oh, no, 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 I'll do it when one of my film crew is about to climb a 15-foot ladder to install a light. It's not that I don't think I'll fall. It's just in my mind, I can control my own body and my decisions, but I can't control someone else's, and therefore, I'm better suited for the task at hand which makes perfect sense to me, but zero sense to the rest of the world, because each of us as individuals is the center of our own existence. I know grandparents die, but it's me we're talking about. Lester shouldn't die because my whole life so far he hasn't, and everyone else's grandfathers have. So by the evidence shown before me, it won't happen to me. It's not that we think this way. It's just that in the back of our brains, Other people fall off cliffs, but I've never fallen off a cliff, therefore I won't fall off a cliff, are the lyrics to the song playing on repeat at all times. It won't, it won't, it won't happen to me. We're not insane. We're just human. And what it all boils down to is when things don't go our way, we're utterly surprised, shocked, devastated. And some a-hole says, I I mean, what did you think was going to happen? Or you must have seen it coming. But the truth is, we didn't. It's only after they're gone that we can come to grips with the fact that they died. And that is not something we're prepared to face ever, no matter how shocking or predictable it is. I could keep talking about this forever because I'll be dealing with it forever, just like everybody else. So that's why I decided this month will be dedicated to loss, how we deal with it, how we don't deal with it, and everything else that happens when it happens to us. Good evening, world, and welcome to Haunting Season. Before we kick off today's episode, I want to say that the subject of loss is a really heavy one, but we're going to do our best to tackle this subject with levity. We're going to have a good time talking about loss, damn it, even if it kills us. Ain't that right, Cody? That's exactly right, Joshua. Life is killing us, so we might as well have fun with it. (laughs) Yeah. If you're new to the show, that's Cody, my co-host, and I'm Josh, and we have a third person on the show today. A special guest. He's not the beloved pansexual from Schitt's Creek. No, that David Rose is unfortunately fictional. But we do have a real David Rose here, and he's arguably a much better fit for today's show. So, David, why don't you introduce yourself to us? 
David Rose here, a uh, writer of now weird fiction and horror fantasy. And prior to that, I served in the military and got out of my system some uh, military nonfiction. <laughs> we are currently in a time of exceptional loss. COVID-19 surpassed the loss of American lives in World War II this past January. We're pre-recording this episode, so we don't know what the exact numbers will be like in April when this comes out, but they will inevitably be worse than they are now. And so this seems like an opportune time to talk about loss. Personally, I feel like Americans aren't really well equipped for dealing with loss. I think as a country, we tend to feel invincible because of our obsession with freedom and ownership and rite of passage and all that crap. Where do you guys land on all this? This might not just be the States, but just Western culture. We, we tend to put mortality on a shelf, uh, you know, like just an inconvenient bill or something, whereas, you know, you spend time further east. Uh, and for a number of reasons, it, it seems to be a bit more uh, of, of a person's daily life. I've seen on whatever news channel you want to flip to, you see this, this death count. And, and I'd always said, you know, to be honest and to be fair, I think if we just put a death count in general, it would, it would be this sort of stark wake-up call to a culture who wants to avoid the topic. As being like Irish-American, funerals are great. I mean, dying is one of the, the greatest things. Getting hitched or put in a ditch is as a reason to party. There's these celebrations that take place in New Orleans where it's like it's a celebration. It's, it's like, you know, celebrate life. But uh, overall, I think that there is definitely like this American kind of just arrogance that like, hey, if shit happens, move on, you know, whatever. And uh, I, we're strong enough. We're bold enough and we'll we'll carry on and carry forward until it happens to you until it happens until it hits you. Then it's like, oh, Jack, put you know, hit the brakes, hit the brakes. I'm texting with like my cousins. I had my grandfather passed away and it's really easy to type like, uh, you know, he wasn't doing well for a while. You know, or like, you know, we kind of knew it was coming. But the reality is, is when it hits, it hits because you you just think that's not my life. That's what I see on TV or that's what I see other people dealing with. Were you Army, Air Force, uh, Marine? Uh, I was in the Marines from 2002 to 2006. One of my first shits creeks. <laughs> my, my contract got screwed with so I could go to boot camp early. And um, I wanted to be infantry. And uh, they, uh, the closest I could get after the fact was artillery. And so I went through all that training, kicked and screamed and was able to do the, what's called the recon in doc and um, became a recon Marine for basically my second half of my enlistment. And a recon Marine, I guess you could say in layman's terms is kind of like a Marine Navy SEAL. It's something that people like to say they are drunk at the bar, but every now mm. and again, every now and again, you, you meet one of us with a usually an excruciating bad back by 30 that is sort of verifies that <laughs> we uh, were masochistic enough to go for it. Well, I appreciate, you know, your, your service. And did you see any sort of like action? Like this is like yeah. between you said 2002, 2006. Six. I was in Iraq, 2004, 2005, which was the uh, second battle of Fallujah. And um, yeah, that was statistically, I believe, I mean, there were pockets before and after in certain areas, but statistically, that was, I believe, the most dangerous time and the most dangerous place at the most dangerous time, that general area. So yeah, we, we, I got into um, only a couple of gunfights, and I say only relative to the fact that we were just constantly uh, hit with indirect fire. You, you, people probably haven't heard it. 
and a decade, but years ago on the news, the term IED was just was ingrained into our, our national conscience. And uh, that's we got we got peppered with mortars and IEDs to where when you got into a gunfight, you're like, ah, OK, at least I can do something. <laughs> yeah. <here." laughs> yeah. Jesus. I want to know if you had any experience with PTSD uh, or had buddies who who dealt with that coming back. So when I was 16, I was in a, a car accident and um, it wasn't it wasn't really a bad wreck. But I remember for like weeks after if I would be in the passenger seat of a friend's car and he just rolled past a stop bar. I would lose my mind. Um, and it went away after maybe two, three weeks. And I remember in Iraq, the sense of invulnerability. Um, until you started to see how vulnerable you really were. And especially again with IEDs, but the moment we got hit and you could see what it could do to your vehicle or, or your or, or people, it completely changed the idea of, wow, we're really rolling around here, you know, at any moment you take a little turn and, and um, the stress level went up. So I would say that PTSD was there uh, in an acute level, but in the long term. I, I will say, I think what our society generally calls PTSD is, is a little bit more complicated than that. Uh, Sebastian Unger has a really great book called Tribe that talks about how people coming back from the Peace Corps and other things like that uh, experience such an extreme reverse culture shock that uh, I really believe, at least this is my stance, that some of the things that gets associated with vets and PTSD is a bit more uh, that it's much more of a transitional thing. I, I think, you know, the, the human animal is, is built to be resilient and, um, whatever PTSD I personally may have experienced, I do think went away pretty quick. I don't want to spend too much more time on the military stuff. Cause like you said, you, you do a lot of podcasts that's, uh, centric to that, but I do have one more question specific to Absolutely. it. Um, it feels like in the military, you're talking about the vulnerability that, you know, that you realize once you're over there, it seems like in the military, they try to not like beat out of you, but like force out of you any sort of weakness or personal feelings from your personality to make you more efficient in wartime scenarios. Is that, does that feel true? And then how, how what was that like going in with that confidence and then having it wiped away? I kind of liked being stripped of my identity. Um, I, I joined the military because I had, I, I had all the energy in the world, but zero direction. I joined at 19, which was actually, I was one of the oldest people. Uh, can, can you believe that? So I had already spent a year working away from home and, and was just struggling in an existential level. And it was kind of nice to not have a name and to just be told what to do. It was kind of a mental holiday. And I'm not saying that's for most people, but for my personal experience, it, was a, it wasn't that bad. You're right. They do want uh, to pump with steroids this sort of boyish invulnerability and uh, a sense of communalism and lose your individuality for uh, military for efficiency purposes. I think depends on the job you do. Um, uh, it, it is on a spectrum, but it, it it was it was fun. It was fantastic to be that young and, and to feel like you're on riding this crest of this wave, and then. Um, but yeah, you, you realize quick that, that you are vulnerable and, um, <laughs> me and my friends who still talk, which is quite a few of us, we we're now, now the vulnerability has shifted to, um, our, our 
injuries from the from the lifestyle we used to live. You came back and you wrote military stuff and then worked into military fiction stuff and then now are writing this like horror fantasy stuff. Um, and as a writer, I feel like, you know, it's important to be in touch with emotions and all of that. Has your experience in the military affected your ability to write or did it take some time to get back into that? I really became a reader in the, in the Marines. Um, and, and I wrote a lot of journals and just, just stuff like that. Cause you really have a lot of downtime. And, um, I'd always, I've always been cited sort of the eccentric personality on the margins, you know, like, uh, uh, the, the recon Marine that reads HP Lovecraft or, or, you know, like, like it's, it wasn't really much of a guy to watch football in, in the, uh, in the lounge. I was, you know, reading, uh, Clark Ashton Smith. So that sort of weirdness was always there. It's kind of hard to explain. I, I think it's fair to say I was trying to be something um, that I thought I should have been in my 20s, which was this very hyper-masculine uh, go-getter because of, of certain circumstances of how I was raised. But inevitably, my I guess you could say my true nature came out uh, around 30 years old, which was that my, my deepest love is the imagination and, and uh, certain dark fringes of it. As George Orwell said, I think he said something along the lines of, he uh, at some point had to stop outraging his true nature. <laughs> How did you bridge that gap between like military fiction and horror? Military nonfiction was just my sort of way to get in, get into the dance. It was sort of like the first few Pantera albums uh, that were all glam metal until they, they, they started. They, then they're like, OK, now we can kind of do what we really want to do. It was catharsis for me. I, I had some things I wanted to say. I was fortunate enough to have some friends in social media that liked my writing and um, were able to give me a platform. And, and it really started from there. But I knew when I was writing military anything that it was it was a one and done. I said this. Now I said this. Um, whereas someone who writes horror or dark fantasy, that it's this 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 eternally bubbling well, you know what I mean? So I could basically sum it up as I just needed to get the military writing out of my system to focus on what I really love. So what do you think it's so important that we as writers talk about loss uh, in our in our work? I'm going to try to like tie like five things together here and it's either going to work or, or fail miserably <laughs> is um, to kind of tell you a, a little bit of a war story. In late 2004, uh, we had a guy get killed by an IED and he was this prime of life early mid twenties guy he was a big gym rat. I mean, he, he turned his body into this vascular fortress with protein and overhead reps. And I'm not trying to like be a good storyteller here per se. I'm hoping like in just bald speech, like so he was just, just obliterated. The largest part we found in him was uh, his boot about half uh, six inches up or below the knee. And I remember again, you got to remember people process these things in different ways. Me kind of being a guy who, reads horror and is a bit of an outsider my mind processed it the following is i was like where is he you know almost like an old horror movie where when a person body is gone there's like a hologram version of themselves looking around i thought i was the only weirdo that would think that a few days later we had some you can get liquor in iraq usually family mails it to you in a listerine bottle we were a few days later we're having a couple drinks back in on base and somebody who wasn't prone to philosophy or literature, he said the exact same thing. He goes, like, where is he now? Moments like that is why something like the ghost and the ghost story has emerged and been sustained in our uh, collective conscious. Is this just 
instant being instantly deprived of someone uh, in an untimely fashion, or there's no goodbye. You were just talking to them a second ago. And it's like, there's, there's no closure. It's, it's, it was so brief. It was so instant that it was a wartime experience where I had these revelations as far as uh, why these elements in horror exist and why they're important to uh, talk about. The everyday experience can even replicate that in a lot of ways, which is why I think we need funerals and we need the, you know, the formality of, of sometimes the wake and seeing the body to, to be able to release that. Yeah, I agree. I agree. The, the things that we write can be so rooted in truth and they don't have to be expressing the exact experience, but taking, taking what you've lived through and, and working that into something that's can become so abstract. Yeah. And, and, and it's interesting how that therapy can, can take shape. An interesting aspect to that same story is that whenever we would hear on the radio, like someone in a, in a brother platoon was injured, you don't mean to do it, but you do this sort of crude utilitarian thing of you do this triage of, okay, I know all these guys in that, in that platoon, who do I not want it to be? It's this thing that you could almost feel guilty about, but it's like, it's a knee jerk reaction. Like I got my friend here and you do this list for eventually at the bottom, there's this pool of guys where you're like, you know, I hope it's not them, but if it is, I can live with it. It's those types of detail dealing with loss that I think people might be ashamed of and, um, and uncomfortable with talking about or acknowledging. And, and I do think that they can be uh, adequately converted into fiction, especially in horror, because it's the space on the shelf where really there's no holds barred. You can put flesh on whatever it is you feel you need to say. I heard you say like H.P. Lovecraft, but like what are some of the other like uh, movies books, people that inspired you, or maybe there's a song or something or a poem you read, like something that has uh, impacted you. Yeah. Well, horror, as far as music, it's going to, it's hands down typo negative. (laughs) Really? Peter Steele? I love. (laughs) Do you really? Man, a buddy of mine once said it best who was in the Marines. He goes, the cool thing about Peter Steele is he looks exactly like he sounds the late, great Peter Steele. Uh, So music definitely that. But when it comes to books, I, um, I was in 2008. I, it's like it fell out of the sky. Uh, I, I discovered a book called The Throne of Bones by Brian McNaughton, and it absolutely changed my life. I've, I had a visceral reaction uh, reading the book the way, and I'm, and I'm not overdoing it here. And I've never found a book that's done, done this to me like, like The Throne of Bones. But I felt my brain moving the way that maybe a drug addict would feel the first time they found their drug. Well, what's the log line for the book? Like, what's the two-sentence version? It is a collection that introduces the universe of the ghoul. There is a ghoul king who um, is worried about his power being usurped. And the the characters and the plot, I probably, should probably just shut up now because I'm going to sound like a drooling groupie, but it's... Uh, <laughs> I love, I love it. <laughs> Are creatures the kind of horror that you're drawn to? Cause like with Lovecraft and then you're mentioning this and I, I was, um, I've read some of Amden Bog. Your, I think that's your most recent book. Um, starts yes. out with a creature story. Is that, is that where you live? Is that your like niche? 
Yeah, I like the element in fantasy, which you which you could say is horror fantasy. And it's it's this ambiguous area. Is it weird fiction? Is, you know, is, is it horror fantasy? But I will say I, I genuinely like otherworldly horror. The only contemporary colloquial horror I, I generally read is uh, Stephen King or, or Caitlin Karen. My all-time favorite book about uh, grief and loss is Lisey's Story by Stephen King. I read it in college and couldn't put it down. After I finished it, I got the audiobook and listened to the audiobook. Lisey is left behind after her husband dies. We pick up with her two years later, and she's gone through all of his notes. He was a like a prolific writer, a successful writer. Um, and as she's going through, she realizes that there's this very real fantasy world that he would go into where he would get his inspiration. I think it's called Booyah Moon. If you stay there too long, there are creatures there that will devour you. And so it's kind of this um, part fantasy, part very stark reality of of dealing with loss. And then the fantasy kind of mirrors this really healthy thing to face your grief head on, but it can also be dangerous. What is the name of that book? I got to write that down. That sounds it's awesome. It's Lisey's story. And it's got a really cool, if you find the hardcover, it's got a really cool reveal of... Uh, of the fantasy world when you take the book jacket off. Awesome. Well, thank you for that. Do you ever see the movie Best Years of Our Lives? Uh, I, I haven't. Did you see it, Josh? No. I'll oh, watch it you, before. You were assigned. This was your assignment. I'll you watch it. Right, you're supposed watch to watch it. it. I'll watch it for I'm next week. Some, I'm writing it down. What's it called again? It's called Best Years of Our Lives. And it's a movie that was made. It's like post-World War II. So these three guys come back. These three uh, vets are coming back to like a small town. And one has lost his arms. And he's got like basically hooks for hands. And so he's got to adjust. But his wife also has to be like, this is now my husband. And then yeah. also the town, you know, who's like waving their flags and like, they're returning. Here go. Oh, wait a second. You know, they're seeing mm -hmm. this for the first and they're like realizing like this is very bad. And I think it's one of the first movies that shows like the horrors of war and also how you deal with it and like the grief and everything that goes on with it. You know, they had said that um, Frankenstein, one of the reasons the, the book was such a success is because uh, World War One had ended and there were so many maimed Brits walking around the streets that uh, the character Frankenstein, who, you know, was uh, was at, at a minimum, you could say, vis visibly disfigured, <laughs> to say the very least, allowed some sort of like cathartic. I don't know what you would say next, cathartic interpretation, expression, I don't know. It resonated into um, the British consciousness in, in a very therapeutic way. They, they could say, oh, you know, this is a monster, and then now these people aren't, because it was so shocking for them to, to see these things. And they, I guess what, they didn't have a, a, an outlet. They didn't want to say these things about these people, but deep, deep down, they were mortified to see these maimed young people. We got to wrap up, unfortunately, but I do have one more question. Yeah, about, yeah I know. I could go. At the, we say this at the end of every episode, basically, is that we could just talk for another like five hours. Um, and maybe after we stop recording, we will. I did have one question that uh, is unrelated to loss, but I did want to ask it because it ha has to do with something I want to bring up in a later episode. 
in horror, I feel like as writers, um, writers often stick to a like a nuclear family or relationship and then build the interesting stuff around that. The idea of like, okay, take normal life and then we'll build the interesting stuff around it. And it's easier to just take that like 1950s version of a family. Um, but in 2021, as we continue to progress as a society and embrace the diversity of our fellow humans, that normal life is a lot more interesting. Uh, so in Amden Bog, I noticed early in the first story, our main female character ends up having a sexual relationship with another woman, which when I read it felt exactly like what should be happening in that moment. It was just written like any other coming of age moment felt for the sake of this question, normal um, as it should. So can you talk about how that ended up being that way in the book and the importance of diversity and inclusivity in horror um, and why it's important to kind of break out of the normalities that we've had set for like so many years. I really haven't done this intentionally, um, but I guess you could say I do use the nuclear family as a backdrop for the way life could have been, but none of them have ever, ever had it. Uh, most of my characters start off uh, their status quo is it a sense of loss they usually uh, are an only child uh, to, to um, only one parent they're they're quite abandoned uh, there's another book i have called the necromancer's will where the one of the larger characters is um, abandoned at birth and grows up in a very brutal orphanage maybe it's because our society does deem the the 1950s nuclear family as how it should be it is very useful in in darker work to deprive characters of that. Chuck Palahniuk talks about it as, as a sort of cheat, a way to cheat to get people to sympathize with otherwise unsympathetic characters. And, and I suppose that might be uh, one of the reasons that, that I do it, yeah. As far as why Matina had a um, lesbian experience, I, I hate to sound like hokey. This is something like an eighth grader would say if they wrote a cool story that like they just saw it that way. But it really did progress that way. And once I saw it progressing that way, I wanted to um, consult sim uh, similar literature uh, to get a feel for um, how, how to do it justice to where it's not uh, a straight dude curving out. I, I didn't want the writer to be there. I, I wanted it to be these two characters who um, were in a uh, believable moment. So, yeah. And it very much came across that way. I mean, like, like I said, it didn't, um, I didn't think twice about it until I was starting to form questions uh, for our interview. And uh, I, I love that because it does happen that way sometimes where you're just writing and, and your mind takes a path and you explore it as if you're living that moment as that character. Um, so thanks for talking about that. I was just genuinely yeah, man. curious. Um, and Cody, I feel like we need to do like a whole month about gender and sexuality and phobias and horror. Um, we could probably do that in June for pride month or something. Find some guests <laughs> yeah. who are uh, yeah, not straight white dudes. Just right. Have an idea. Right. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, David, thanks so much. What do, you, what do you have coming up? What's next on the, uh, on the agenda for David? Well, I'm actually working on a, a short story called Black Magic Summer, which takes place in the same world as Amden Bog. And then to get like updates or like, here it is. You got you to gotta throw out like the social media stuff. It, it, is, it is the times we live in. First, if anybody is interested in my, in my um, dark military ramblings, which I assure you are transgressive and uh, are not jingoistic and go against the grain of that propaganda that you were referring, which appears in every generation there's a war, um, 
so big and, and the global war on terror, it's ridiculous. So right there, No Joy by David Rose, not of Schitt's Creek, but there, are, I'm, I'm not even gonna go there. And, uh, and, and this one, this one, my friends, the glossy Amden Bog. And you can find me and them through links on Amazon, through uh, Instagram and Twitter. Twitter is David Rose author. And Instagram is David Rose uh, bookended by way too many dashes. Yes. So. <laughs> <laughs> and you're approachable. Um, we connected over Instagram. That's how we met, which is awesome. Um, the, the age we live in. Well, I can't thank you enough for talking to us about loss and grief and making it fun and being open and vulnerable. And um, yeah, I'm looking forward to reading more of your stories. Thank you guys sincerely for having me on. I, I really, really appreciate it. Thank you for your service. And, you know, God bless you. Thank you, guys. Next week, Cody and I will be talking about the other side of loss, the funny things that happen in the wake of death. It's going to be an awesome episode. We'll see you then. Roll credits. <laughs> Hunting Season was created by me, Joshua Sterling Gregg. Produced by Greg Holdsman and Jessica Richmond. And executive produced by Matt Gielen, Patrick James Lynch, and Ryan Gielen. And is a joint production of Believe Limited and Matt Gielen. This episode was written and hosted by Cody Dugan and Joshua Sterling Bragg. It was edited by Colby Crow. And select music in this episode was made exclusively for the podcast by North Innsbruck. If you like our show, please subscribe on your favorite platform. We have a video version of the show on YouTube and Facebook. Facebook and audio versions on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Is that good? Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs>